All right, well, good morning and welcome uh, to week one of our series, Introducing the Life and Teachings of Jesus. Uh, I'm Jeremy, I'm one of the leaders here at church, and it's great to have you uh, with us for this. Whether you come along week in and week out, or whether this is your first time uh, in either this church or a church gathering, if you've been invited along. Uh, And if this is your first time, especially a warm welcome to you, I realize that that's not a normal thing to do in our culture. Um, and so it's a big deal. You could have come along here and found out that it was, you know, it could have been some kind of an intervention type thing or like one of those things where they try and tell you a, a pyramid scheme, but they say it's a multi-level marketing platform or it really could have been anything. So good on you for being here. And I think, look, probably one of the biggest, I guess, maybe concerns when people come to a, a, a church gathering is maybe not so much around that, but of just being bored. Uh, I, for me, for most of my life, I was not a believer. I grew up in a Christian family, and I went along to church, but I, for most of my life, did not enjoy it. I found that I just sat there and perished with boredom, um, but now I am subjecting people to that self-same boredom that I, you know, that I once endured as a teenager. They say that you either die a hero or live long enough to become the villain, so I guess now I'm, I'm responsible for that. But look, hopefully, hopefully, even if this is your first time here... Uh, that this will, won't be boring, but hopefully engaging, uh, that it will introduce Jesus and what he says and provoke some thought around the ideas that concern all of us around living life to the full and finding happiness. Me, growing up, as I mentioned, I wasn't a believer. I didn't follow Jesus. I didn't uh, believe in Christianity or call myself a Christian necessarily. But at the same time, I, didn't really, I wasn't overtly negative towards church. I think for me... Probably when it came to Christianity or Jesus, my biggest concern was I just couldn't see what it had to do with finding life to the full. For me, I lived my life as I did. I enjoyed my high school years. I enjoyed partying. I had a great group of friends. And I didn't really see what Jesus would add to that. I didn't really see that there was any kind of God-shaped hole in my heart that was missing, that needed to be filled. It wasn't that I was overtly negative towards Christianity or Jesus or church. I just thought, look, this, this really hasn't got much to do with me. Having said that, I still had unanswered questions about meaning and life and death and all these kind of bigger things. But in the main, life was pretty good for me and I felt like I had it mostly worked out. For me, the idea of growing up and living life to the full was something around the idea of having as much fun as you could at the same time as hitting certain milestones along the way. In high school, I enjoyed partying and so for me, it was kind of like, look, I realize that I can't do this for my whole life. At some point, it crosses over from being great to being a little bit sad. You're just that guy at the party who's partied too long in your life. And so I realized at some point, this way of living had an expiry date. And so the the view that I'd formed about life in high school years was kind of like this. Just hit your KPIs. So sort of like, make sure you're sort of married before 30, kids in a house before 40, retired and grandkids before 65. And in between that, just have as much fun as you can, if it's possible. Have as much fun as you can, but make sure you hit your life KPIs. No one ever sat me down and told me that, but I just absorbed it somehow by osmosis. But whether or not that's your view of life to the full, everyone in this room, everyone seeks happiness. There's no way around it. Blaise Pascal, who was a mathematician and philosopher, said this, All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and others avoiding it is the same desire in both attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. 
This is the motive of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves. His idea was that everyone seeks happiness. That in fact, every moment of every day, we are making small calculations about what will make us happier. Even from the moment you get up, the decision to snooze or wake up on the first alarm call is a decision about what will, be ha- what will make me happier. We can't get around it. There is no way of avoiding it. Every decision we make is a calculation on what we think will make us happier. Even, he mentions in there, the cause of some people going to war, and it's an apt quote for today on Remembrance Day, the cause of some going to war or others avoiding it is the same desire in both, the belief that I'll be happier. For some, they believe, I'll be happier to go to war, even with the risks that come with that, rather than be a coward. For others, they're like, it doesn't matter what people say about me, I'm out of this. But we cannot avoid seeking happiness. And so the question then becomes, well, if all people throughout all human history, the best minds, the people with the most resources, have all lived their whole life trying to be as happy as possible, why haven't we nailed it yet? Why isn't it easier? If we worked out how to put a man on the moon, why can't we work out a solution where everyone can live the happiest possible life? So I reckon there are three things that make this pursuit of happiness difficult. We all have a deep desire, an unavoidable desire, to live as happily as we can, to live life to the full. And yet there are, I think, three things that I think make it difficult. And I'll spend my week just asking people in casual conversation... It's hard to kind of switch it and make it a bit philosophical, but what they think the kind of three biggest barriers to happiness are. And so that's kind of informed what I've put together here today. But I reckon there are three things. And the first one is this. The first is that our, our hearts are, are kind of broken or it's, it's hard to place our loves. Let me explain that a little bit. I think it's difficult to know what to want in this life. We have a deep desire to be happy. It's unavoidable. And yet oftentimes it's hard to know what it is to really put ourselves into. Almost two decades ago, there was a film by a guy called P.T. Anderson uh, called Magnolia that won a few awards. And it was, um, it was the story of, I think, pretty much one day in the San Fernando Valley, and it had no main character. So it was kind of a, an ensemble of characters, and all their stories kind of intersect and cross over. Uh, but one of them was played by a guy called William H. Macy, who's had the unfortunate curse of playing a loser in every film he's in. That poor guy, every time he gets the call up, he's like, is it going to be the loser again? Yep, it is. But, uh, but he's, he's made a career out of it. But in this, in this particular one, he plays a character who's now middle-aged, but he, in his childhood, he was a whiz kid who made you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars being on a quiz show called What Do Kids Know, where it pitches really smart kids against average adults. And, uh, and he'd sort of made his career out of being like this kind of genius kid. But his parents kind of ended up taking all his money. He's just working in a department store. He's, he's become, you know, a bit of a, a washed up sort of character. Um, and at the end of this film, he's decided that he needs to get braces in order to win the, the affection of his love interest. But he can't afford it. So he decides to go and break into the shop where he works. And in doing so, he ends up, like with all the stuff in his life, making a mess of it. He ends up falling off the building and a police officer sees it happening and sees the robbery in process and goes over to him. And at the end of the movie, he's just there, a mess of a man, he's bleeding everywhere and he just, he breaks down and says to this police officer, I've got so much love to give, I just don't know where to put things. I've got so much love to give, I just don't know where to put things. Now, you or I may not have made a mess of our life like Donnie Smith, 
But we, at various times, have wondered, where do I put things? We've got this deep desire to live life to the full. We have this precious gift called life, and you only get one. And yet sometimes it's hard to know what to invest in, what to love. Should I invest in my career or family? Should I persevere with a relationship or start a new one? Should I play it safe or go for adventure? There seems to be something wrong with our internal compass. We don't always seem to know exactly what it is that we want and in what proportions. But there's a second thing that shows us that there's something wrong with our internal compass, with our heart. And it's this. Oftentimes we love things that don't end up delivering. One author, Ravi Zacharias, says, The loneliest moment in life is the moment at which you achieve the thing you thought would bring you the most meaning and it lets you down. You're single and you feel like, look, all my troubles will be over once I finally have that relationship. And then it continues. If you go, look, once I've got a house or a certain level of income or security, and yet still that's not enough. Even for a friend of ours who was an Olympian, so had worked her entire life to make it to the Olympics and actually won a gold medal at the last Olympics. She was saying the funniest thing about it was that after having won it, so everyone, the entire team, it's not just her, were all working to this single point. They said the strangest thing was the feeling the next morning. Everyone had this strange sort of sense of like, is that it? They have these big sort of after parties and everything, but then the morning after kicks in, they're like, I guess we start working to the next Olympics or whatever it is. And it's a reasonably common phenomenon apparently that when people win gold medals, there's a, there's a sense that kicks in right after of like, is that it? We love things sometimes that let us down or don't quite live up to what we were hoping for. Sometimes it's just that we love things that are just plain bad for us. We go back to the same relationship even though it's a disaster. We do things over and over even though we're like, this isn't making me happy at all. For some reason there's something wrong with our hearts where sometimes we just desire things that we know ourselves aren't even good for us. But lastly, look, even if that's not the case... Lastly, one of the things that shows that we, we often don't know where to put things is that we are often prone to envy. Dorothy Sayers once said that envy is sorrow at someone else's joy. And someone else has said that this is basically the central MO of Instagram. <laughs> that it's basically designed and set up for you to curate your life in such a way that it presents that you are living the ultimate life. You can hear, I've heard there are webinars that you can do where you can do what's called a, a social media clean out, where you go back and you remove any awkward or whatever photos, particularly ones that other people have tagged you in, um, and where, where, things, where you, the image of yourself isn't quite what you're hoping to present, and there's a way to sort of tidy it up. But social media is envy-inducing. It could be the fact that you're actually living quite happily, but then you see someone else's life and their happiness almost makes you feel a little bit like you're missing out on something. Like, why can't I be the perfect package? Why can't I be the, the mum who's successful and has a career and, and seems to have everything together and all my kids, all their clothes are beautiful and intact all the time and they just seem to be perfectly behaved, creative individuals? Oftentimes, the fact that we can be so easily induced by envy shows that we're maybe not sure that what we're living for is the thing that we really should be living for. That this is the thing that matters. And so that's the first challenge to living a happy life, isn't it? There's something kind of broken with our internal compass, with our hearts. We don't always know where to put things. But the second one is this. The second problem is external. And it's, 
I'd phrase it as suffering, but maybe everything from boredom right through to the more extreme forms of suffering. See, suffering covers anything from kind of low-range suffering like boredom or annoyance right up to major things like depression or trauma. And these present a major issue to living a happy life, don't they? Because they are exactly the opposite. But the strangest thing about it is that somehow living life to the full means that you can't just avoid these things. You somehow have to go through them. I realize that uh, Adam Sandler is not a name you normally associate with um, being philosophical or deep, but I, I love his flicks anyway. And he has done a few think pieces. And one of them that I think you'd put in this category is a film years ago called Click. Has anyone seen it? Can I get some kind of a gaze? Okay, this is going to be great for the both of you. Um, <laughs> he did a film called Click, and the premise of it is very simple to get through, as most of his films are. Yeah. <laughs> he, that's it, right? And he's got a, he's got a, he somehow gets hold of a magical remote, and this remote control gives him the ability to fast forward not his TV, but his life. So when he comes across moments that are either difficult or boring or insignificant or just painful, he can just skip through them. And at first, he's only skipping through a few things, but as the movie goes on, he skips through more and more and more and more and more. But then it comes to the end of his life. So the film's all wrapping up. And what he realizes is that he's missed the whole thing. That in fast-forwarding all those kind of boring and inane bits, by trying to edit and curate his life a little bit, it actually seems like somehow he actually missed out on life that was there to have. And it's funny, it seems to be a kind of a familiar concept to us that we realize that somehow living life to the full, a happy life, means not going around those things. You do have to go through them. There has to be a way that you have enough that you can find joy and happiness in the midst of those things and not just avoid them. Russell Brand is a comedian and actor, said, Drugs and alcohol are not my problem. Reality is my problem. Drugs and alcohol are my solution to fill up a hole inside of me. Drugs and alcohol are about avoidance, but so are many other things. We can, consumerism, entertainment, sometimes even career is a way of avoiding certain realities that we don't want to deal with. And yet somehow, if we do avoid them and manage to do that, we won't end up with life and life to the full. And so the two problems we have so far is that our hearts are broken and that there is suffering. We can't avoid it. And the third one, not to be morbid, but the third one is our own mortality or death. There are, there are so many things that our culture, compared to other cultures, is quite good at being open about. We're quite good at being, again, relative to other cultures, good about being open about mental health or sexuality or things like that. But one of the things we're not great at talking about is the issue of death. And this hasn't always been the case. There used to be a phrase around called memento mori, which meant remember death. In life, remember death. Which sounds, again, morbid, but it's really just a reality. It's something that we have to factor in. We can't seem to avoid it. Recently, so I'm a, I'm a Premier League fan, and so I follow Optus Sport to get the updates on everything that's happened. And, uh, and I think it was two weekends ago that the entire feed was just cluttered with stuff about a Leicester City game where their, their chairman, so Vishay uh, Srivadhanaprabha, uh, was flying, as he often did, out of the, the stadium in his helicopter and it unexpectedly crashed and killed everyone on board. And the first post about it said this. It said, sport is supposed to be a distraction. 
So the man in the middle of a fairy tale is a painful dose of perspective. There's this sense of like, sport is supposed to be about getting away from some of these realities, and yet death seems to have a way of intruding upon our lives uninvited. It comes unexpectedly. And so this is the third barrier. Somehow, in living life to the full, we have to deal with this question. And you might say, well, do you really have to deal with it? I guess it's the same in the way that, look, you don't have to have a roof on the house, but it will rain. Eventually, it's a reality that we're going to have to deal with. And not only that, but people talk about it. Again, with what happened at Leicester City, the theme that kept coming through, there were two major ones. One was that sport is meant to be a distraction, And the second one was this, that this is the kind of thing that brings everything into perspective. Isn't it strange how how death has this effect of of suddenly judging everything in our life as to whether or not it really mattered? A lot of the managers were talking about, you know, this really really sheds light on what actually matters. It really brings things into perspective. Football is a serious pursuit in England, if you didn't know that. People devote their whole lives to it. And the moment death intruded on an event, it was like everything else evaporated. It has this almost zero gravity effect. When a shuttle goes into space and it's zero gravity, anything that's not bolted down, suddenly, no matter how heavy it is on Earth, suddenly becomes weightless. And death seems to have this zero gravity effect. Anything that's not significant or meaningful in our lives is suddenly exposed for what it is. What's really worth living for? Would I be ready for death? These are the three great realities that I think make the pursuit of happiness and living life to the full quite difficult. That's why with 7 billion people all pursuing it at once, it's still quite difficult. These are hard things to work through, hard questions to answer. And so that's what makes what Jesus says in the passage that Jacob read out before pretty extraordinary. I'm not sure if you saw it it, as it rolled through, but in John 10, 10 to 11, Jesus says this, The thief comes only to kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. So in this little section here, Jesus makes one very obvious claim and one very extraordinary claim. The obvious claim is that there are thieves that come to steal, kill, and destroy. And here he's using that in terms of a a metaphor. He's not not making the, the obvious claim about literal thieves. He's saying, look, there are people who know that all of us are trying to pursue happiness, that we face these three problems of dealing with our broken hearts and misplaced desires, with suffering and with death, and they'll promise us life to the full without any care for the results or the impact it has on us. This is what he describes as a thief, someone who promises life to the full and yet can't deliver, that they're exploiting. Listening to a podcast recently, and by guy, he's a public atheist called Sam Harris with a reasonably popular podcast. And he, um, he was interviewing a guy called Tristan Harris, not Tristan Harris, I had to check up on that. They're no relation to each other. But Tristan Harris has been described as the conscience of Silicon Valley. I don't know if he gave himself that title. Uh, if I was giving myself a title, that wouldn't be a bad one. But, um, but uh, either way, that's how he's been described. And he was talking about, they're having this discussion about technology and particular, particularly smartphones. And uh, Tristan Harris made this point. He said that, uh, that we should think about our phones as like cities. When, um, when governments uh, want to construct livable cities, 
they don't just build it out as much as they can with, with housing. They try to create spaces so that it becomes livable. So it's not just a city where people exist, but where you can actually live. And he said, these, uh, our phones are becoming for us, like we spend enough time on them that they are cities that we basically live in. And he says, is anyone paying attention to the kind of infrastructure in these cities? He says, is anyone asking the question, is this good for people? In particular, he was saying the three big players in the game are Google, Facebook, and Apple. And two out of the three of those uh, have, a, um, have an advertiser-driven model that means that their main goal, if they're to be profitable, is to get you on their platforms for as long as they possibly can. That's how they monetize uh, their model. And he was saying, but no one's, people have worked out, if they do certain things, they can keep you on your phone for longer, but no one's asking the question, is this good for the user? Our phones promise, in many ways, to answer many of the problems that we have in life. Like in the movie Click, these are things that we can use to swipe away anxious or even just dissonant thoughts. There's even the phrase, there's an app for that. For every problem in life, there is a solution. And yet, these things are not making our lives richer and fuller. Jesus says there are thieves who will exploit our desire to find life to the full. And the extraordinary claim that he makes is that he is not one of them. In this passage, he says, I'm the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. So Jesus is making this this extraordinary claim. One is that he has the answers to life and life to the full, which is big enough on its own. But secondly, that rather than taking from people, he actually lays down his life for, for us. Now, that is a significant claim. So if you had a claim to have the answers to finding life and life to the full, when the brightest minds throughout history have not been able to nail one universal model for all of us, is exceptional. But he even goes even further. If, if you ever look at the section of text just before what he said in John 10, uh, 7 to 11, he says this. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it to the full. So in this section, he claims not only to know the way, to be a spiritual advisor, he claims to be the way. He says, I'm the door. I'm the actual way to find life to the full. So even more extraordinary than the claim to have solved these very difficult problems around our broken hearts, around suffering and death, he actually says he himself is the answer, that he claims that he has come to us, that he is God himself entered into human history to create the answer to our most difficult problem, why it is that we all seek happiness and why it remains so elusive. And it's an extraordinary claim. The claim that Jesus makes to be God is the claim that sets Christianity apart from every other major world religion. It is not a small thing. But the second thing that's interesting about this is that he claims that in order for us to have life to the full, he has to lay down his life for us. Listening to a, a talk this week, one man was recounting the time when he shared with a friend who is not at all convinced that Jesus is who he says he is. And on hearing the claim that Jesus says that he dies for us, he replied, well, that's extremely manipulative. I never asked him to die for me. Which is, I think, a fair point. If someone said to you, hey, I spent all my life savings on a, 
like a 19-foot statue of you and now my family's living on the street because I've spent it on them, how would you reply to that? You would say, well, look, I never asked you to do that. Like, I'm sorry you've ruined your life, but I didn't ask you to do that. And so Jesus' claim that he has died for you, unless it's for good reason, is a bit like, well, I didn't ask you to do that. It's the same as if someone said, if someone jumped in front of a truck for you, we think, well, un- unless that was actually somehow in some way to save me, that's not a heroic act. That's insane. And so the claim that Jesus makes here is that he knows the way to life to the full, that he in fact is the way, and that it involves him not taking from you, but actually laying down his life for you, and that it was a necessary act rather than an arbitrary one. These are massive claims. For all the things you can say about Jesus, you you cannot say that he left people wondering how to respond. C.S. Lewis, uh, who wrote the the Narnia Chronicles, said this about Jesus. He said, I'm trying to prevent here uh, anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him or kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. And so over the next few weeks, we're actually going to be unpacking this this claim of Jesus, that he is God, that he knows the way to life and life to the full, and that he somehow needed to lay down his life for us, and to investigate it fully, to look at it and think, can can someone, a, a modern, rational, scientific person, really believe the kind of things that Jesus said and the claims that he made? Is there any evidence for it? Is there any reasonable terms to it? Is it merely just a placebo? Because Jesus didn't claim or ask to be taken in that way. The claims he made were serious and they demand adult investigation. And more than that, these claims, if they're true, are life-changing. There are many things or claims that people make that whether they're true or false don't impact you at all. There's really no need to respond. And yet these ones, if they are would be absolutely life-changing. And so for that reason, to finish up, we're actually going to finish with um, the testimony of one of the members here, uh, a guy called Ryan, who's actually in our small group, um, who shares something of how it is that he came to be convinced that Jesus was who he says he is. And then after that, Jacob's going to lead us in how we'll respond next. Uh, Hi, my name's Ryan. I have...